Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 93 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year! 2020 has arrived. It has. What a nice, even number. It is. I'm really excited, actually. I, I'm, I, I've talked about this on the podcast in the past. My birthday is at the beginning of the year also, so I always feel like the new year is truly a new beginning and a new start, and I really embrace that and love it. Yeah. So Fresh start. Yeah. yeah. And happy to be recording so early in the year with my cougar buddy. <laughs> right so here we are. Here we are. It's an overcast winter day in Connecticut rainy-ish. So it's good to be together talking about books. We have some exciting news, which is our buddy, Julia. From Montana, was the winner of our double header giveaway. Uh, we gave away a copy of Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead and The Hollows, the Hollows which is by Jess Montgomery, who you will hear our interview with her about that book at the end of this episode. Yeah, we literally just hung up the phone with her. It was really a nice conversation, and we look forward to sharing that with you. And Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, just as a reminder, by Olga Tukarchuk, is our upcoming read-along. Chris and I will be recording our conversation on February 14th, and the episode will air on the 18th. Yep. We do have a Goodreads discussion page going about that. Some people are already starting to read. I know I'll be starting uh, later this month, and it's just really kind of cool. Uh, some people have already read the book in the past, or they just finished it now because of the read-along, so it's exciting to start see uh, comments coming in about that. And apparently there is a huge waiting list at a lot of libraries for the book, because, you know, it did win the Nobel, Yeah. so there's a high demand for it. But, you know, the good thing about high demand is often that means the library will order extra copies. Yeah. So we wish you all luck, and we hope that your library decides to bring in more copies. Right. And then we also just wanted to refresh people's memories, just because it's the beginning of the year, and we have You could be a new listener, right. too. So yeah. welcome to new listeners. If one of your resolutions was to listen to more podcasts, welcome. Yes, we're happy to have you. We just wanted to remind people that we have a booktube channel where we post little fun videos of ourselves. At least we think they're fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also have show notes that are available. So when we start getting carried away, like this episode is going to be a lot of books because Chris and I are going to talk about our favorite reads. And I had a little case of the plague over the holidays, so I read a lot. Don't start to freak out and be driving down the road and think you have to be writing names of books on your hand as you're driving. <laughs> we put everything in the show notes, which are found at www.bookcougars.com. And also there, you can see that we have a subscribe page. You can subscribe to our newsletter. Yeah, we do a monthly newsletter just about what's going on, what's coming up. And also, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you're automatically entered in any giveaways that we do. Right, which we typically do every 10th episode, but then every once in a while, there's a random one like the one we last. Yeah, just we just did. had kind of a couple in a row of giveaways because yeah. we love to give books. That's right. It's a fun thing. Spread the joy. But yeah, every 10th episode, we definitely celebrate that milestone with another giveaway. What are you currently reading, Chris? Well, I'm currently reading three books, and I'm actually breaking my cardinal rule about reading two novels at the same time but I just couldn't help myself so I am reading The Hollows by Jess Montgomery that was my last book started in 2019 I have about 100 pages to go 
And then the other novel I'm reading is The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by Olivia Waite. I started that one. That's my first book of 2020. It is a lesbian romance by Avon Impulse. Uh, this is one of the authors that was at KissCon at Mohegan Sun that Bank Square Books sold books at and supported. I'm really enjoying it. I had posted on Instagram that it would be my first lesbian romance. And what I meant by that was that it was the first lesbian romance from a mainstream publisher. Okay. Because I've read tons of lesbian romances from you know, lesbian imprints. And then there's things like Sarah Waters' Tipping the Velvet, which was also mainstream, but not really a romance by a romance imprint, which is a different feel of a romance novel. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I said, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I do know what it's you just, mean. It's, it's all about the romance yeah. as opposed yeah. to the struggle through the homophobic world that a lot of earlier books about women loving women were about right and I mean I think there's an acceptance that comes along with it right in a romance novel from Avon right yeah and that's yeah. a wonderful thing yeah I'm just about maybe 50 60 pages in and really okay. enjoying it and then I'm reading a nonfiction too called epic solitude a story of survival and a quest for meaning in the far north this is by Catherine Keith it comes out February 4th from Blackstone Publishing. I have a advanced reader digital copy from NetGalley. And she's an outdoor adventure woman who is also a dog musher, which is one of the things that drew me to the book because I one of my dogs is a retired sled dog. So right. it's kind of fun to read about a musher going through these races. And it's her backstory as well because she had some abuse that happened in her life that came out after she was married at a young age and her life just kind of crumbles and she's always been attracted to nature and especially the far north and so as she's healing she's hiking and doing outdoor things to help herself mm -hmm. so i'm about 40 percent into it at this point and they're short chapters usually that kind of go back and forth in time I'm at the point, in the beginning, it's a little bit focused more on her early years and the joy of doing outdoorsy things. And then now I'm at the point where she's talking about her struggles, which are hard, but I'm reading it. Yeah, that's a tough thing to tackle this time of year because I find it's hard enough to get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to go into someone else's darkness can be hard for me. I have yeah. to be really careful. But I also think it's really interesting when I'm such a lover of water and whenever I need to tackle hardship, I have to go towards water. And I'm always fascinated by people. So a lot of people have the exact same feeling about mountains, mm -hmm. that it's all about the mountains for them. And it, mountains don't do it for me in that way. Yeah. And I, I just think it's really interesting because to me, mountains feel a little too closed in or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's something about the horizon of water. Seeing the horizon is so important. Yeah. I know when I lived in Nevada in the mountains, it was beautiful. But I did start to feel a little claustrophobic mm -hmm. and, and yeah. missed seeing the sunset and the mm -hmm. horizon. And yeah. yeah, well, I'll be curious to see how you feel about that as you keep reading. Well, it's my nighttime book because I'm reading it on my e-reader, mm -hmm. which is backlit, so it doesn't disturb Laura in bed at night, mm -hmm. and I don't have to juggle around with a, a book light. Yeah. which I love that technology, but it is so much easier just to plop down with my e-reader. Yes, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, what are you reading? 
I am reading, you know, I have I put all this pressure on myself about like, what's going to be the book I end and start the year with and I was stressing myself out. And then I decided just get a book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But when we go to our next segment, I read a lot of dark books. And so I just finally decided you just need a really nice light read. So I picked up Jojo Moy's book, The Giver of Stars. She's a really big selling author. She wrote that book, Me Before You, that was turned into a movie and was really popular. And this book is about the pack horse librarians in Kentucky. Cool. Yeah, Yeah, I've heard about that one. Yeah. So it's fictional story, but it's based on the true story of these pack horse librarians. So I'm really enjoying it. It does have very interesting story arcs. But the basis of it is these women who are in the hills of Kentucky, bringing the joy of reading into really rural areas. I love it. And I'm glad that it's the one that I ended and began Mm -hmm. the decade with no pressure on that one. (laughs) Well, you know, people are arguing about when the decade actually ends and starts. Mm. Some people are like, it's not until 2021. Oh, yeah. And other people are, I'm just like, I'm just going with the 2020 thing. It's me too. Yeah. And hey, if we get to revisit more history next year, that's fine, too. (laughs) Just read. Yes. The only thing I have read in the last two weeks in terms of finishing it anyway, because I think I already talked about Darkness for Light Mm -hmm. by Emma. Yeah. Um, This kitsch. Mm-hmm. is how you pronounce her name corrected by the author herself. herself yes she said thank you for the valiant effort to pronounce my name correctly but it's like kitsch so this kitsch yes good way to remember great read but the thing that i did finish in addition to that was a short story by cather willa cather a death in the desert that was our last story for the Willa Cather short story project. And I really enjoyed it. It's about this man who is the younger brother of a famous composer. He's going just on a vacation to get away for a week and runs into a friend from back east in the music world who is now dying. She's dying in her home. And it's kind of about how he has always been... I I guess some people could say overshadowed by his brother, but he looks very much like his brother. So a lot of people mistake him. And instead of becoming embittered by it, he seems to very much embrace it and be gentle with people and to know that people need to have gentleness when it comes to being so wrapped up in their hearts with the songs that his brother has written. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's just really a beautifully written story and I enjoyed it very much. Good. Yeah. And, and that's the short story project that's continuing in this decade. It is. Yeah, it'll be continuing in 2020. We re- and all this, I started it as just a way to read more of Cather's short stories, because I just don't go to short stories as something to pick up and read casually. Mm-hmm. I needed to have more of an intention behind it, because I do want to read her short stories but trying to do it, quote, on my own, just yeah. reading through, you know, it just wasn't working. So I thought, oh, yeah, do a challenge so and then smart. it's public and you'll follow through on it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's been working. So that's great. Yeah. Well, I really wanted to embrace the 
quiet that comes down around the holidays. And so I had made myself a promise that I really wanted to read as much as I could. And then I got, as I mentioned, a little case of the plague. (laughs) I was really, really sick. So I read a ton. So I'm going to talk in depth about some of these books and not so much about the others because it's I read a lot. I finished the book that I spoke about in the last episode called Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. To remind people, he's the author of The Family Fang as well. So he has, and he has other books out, but I know that he got a lot of attention for that book as well. And this is the one about the brother and sister who catch on fire when they become nervous or angry. And it was a really fun read. I highly recommend it. I'm not going to talk at length about it because I already did, but I really enjoyed it. It was really good. It just sounds funny to say. I really, it's a really fun read. And, you know, we're talking about children who catch fire. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, so much of it was just about, you know, having people in your life who care about you and what that means and, and adaptation, obviously, and how can we live in this world. And as I said before, I know the catching on fire had some greater meaning. I never figured it out. And I didn't really care. I became okay with that. Mm-hmm. I read a great review of it by, oh, the woman who wrote, Fleischman is in trouble. She has three names, something Brodesser or something like that. I don't know. I can see the name of her. Yeah. I'll put the review in the show notes. And she actually wrote about that. Like, I really felt like I should have thought about the significance of what it meant, but I was enjoying the book too much and just felt like, don't get bogged down in that, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I feel like if a professional reviewer can say that, I can say it too. Totally. (laughs) The other book I read was called A Burning. Apologies in advance. This does not come out until June of 2020, which is a long ways away. This is one that got on my radar from the incomparable Anne Kingman. I saw her putting out an alert to her fellow book reps saying, hey, everybody, pay attention. Your arc should be in the mail. And I was like, wow, I want to know about this book. (laughs) And I went to NetGalley and thank you to NetGalley. I got a copy. The author's name is Mega Majumdar. This is a debut novel. I think it's going to be a big book. I'm predicting it now. It's so tough and dark, but so well written. And the story arc is about a fact that it takes place in India and there was a terrorist attack on a train where about 140 people were killed. And there are three main characters in the book. It's told from three different points of view. And one of them is this young woman, Javon, who made a kind of a flippant comment on Facebook and becomes the person that the police believe committed the terrorist act. Wow. When indeed she did not. And she's a very impoverished, destitute young woman. The other character is named P.T. Sir, and he is actually her physical education instructor at the school she goes to. And then the other character is named Lovely. And he is a, I don't know how to pronounce this word. I meant to look it up, a hijira, which is a transgendered person in India and is hoping to become an actress and is studying to be an actress and become a big Bollywood, you know, famous actress. Mm -hmm. And it so speaks to... What can that that when there is a terrorist attack or something tragic happens, the police just want to find someone to blame 
because societally, I think that makes people feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know, harken back to weapons of mass destruction, right? Right. I mean, we want to have answers to things that sometimes have no discernible answers. Yeah, well, we want somebody to pay and we want there to be consequences for somebody. Yeah. So Javon ends up paying and these other characters become important to her defense And it's really interesting to see how politics can really turn to ugliness and money can become problematic. So I really don't want to give anything away. It was such an interesting book to read. I highly recommend it. Um, But it was dark, really dark. Again, that was called A Burning by Mega Majumdar. And that comes out June 2nd, 2020. So I will remind people about that. I also read The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. This is a book, again, that Anne Gingman talked about. She talked about that when she was on last time. Episode 86. Okay, great. Yeah. Highly recommend you go listen to Anne talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, because it sounds so fascinating. Yeah. And she just has such a great way of, you know, she describes books for a living. Yeah. And she really did describe this book well. Just a quick reminder that it, it takes place in Japan. And it's about the idea that things that we know as a daily occurrence, like birds flying in the sky, someday they decide that there aren't going to be birds anymore. And then the memory police's job is to go into people's homes and discard and get rid of anything that would remind them of what a bird is. Right. So books, artwork, figurines, clothing. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. And there are certain characters or people who don't, their memories can't be cleaned. And so the memory police don't like that. It's a very fast read, quite disturbing. Another bit of darkness. I didn't, I have to say, I didn't love it, but I did attribute that to potentially my feverish state. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I don't want to knock it too badly. A lot of people, including Anne, loved it. Again, the memory police, Yoko Agawa, if you want to hear Anne talk about that. She was on episode 86. The next book I read was called The Shape of Night by Tess Gerritsen. Oh, yeah. This is a book I came to know about because you and our mystery man, John Valerie, brought me into a conversation on Twitter, which I couldn't find. I tried to find it because it was months ago, saying, oh, Emily Shirley needs to read this book because it's about a cookbook author who goes to Maine to work on her next cookbook and test recipes. And she rents this big mansion on the seashore. And then right, it totally sounds like an Emily book. Yeah, except for the part about (laughs) poltergeist sex. (laughs) 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 Which I'm no prude, but it was like, really? Uh, What is going on here? And it was very S&M-y and (laughs) quite shocking. But I read it from cover to cover. Um, It was an odd book. It was very odd. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I feel about whether you can have sex with a ghost or not. Yeah. I I have no experience. I have no experience. So I I can't say that I do either. I I didn't love it, but I read it. Yeah. Because I had to see what happened, which is what happens with mysteries. Like, is she really having sex with a ghost? I find this hard to believe. So go for it if you'd like. The Shape of Night by Tess Gerritsen. Um, then the last book I read was actually a short story that is called Everything My Mother Taught Me. And it's by my favorite author, 
Ooh, I'm hesitant to say that out loud, but I think she might be my favorite author, mm-hmm. Alice Hoffman. But this is a really weird thing, and I don't know if you know more about this, but I was just, I was on my Kindle. I use a Kindle, but I typically get most of my ebooks from either NetGalley or the library systems. And there was this thing about Amazon original short stories, mm-hmm. and this was one of them, and it was free. And so, I wanted to read it because it was Alice Hoffman, but it also made me kind of angry because I'm like, does that mean nobody can get it unless they're using a Kindle and they have Amazon and all of that? Possibly. Yeah. yeah. Because a Kindle does have proprietary software. Right. So I'm going to talk about it, but I'm a little annoyed by that because I don't know if it's also the sort of thing that after a little while they would make it available to everybody and it'd be in the library systems. I don't really know. I know. We'll have to look into that. Yeah. Yeah. More to come on the next episode. I'll do a little research. I didn't have time to do that. I love the short story also. You were just talking about that. And I want to commit to reading more short stories. And I'd never read an Alice Hoffman short story. I'm sure she has some out there. I've never seen that she has, you know, like a a book of short stories or anything like that. But it was a really lovely, very short story about a mother and a daughter who go to Maine. And the mother is not very kind. And they end up working at a lighthouse. And it's a place where there's several lighthouse keepers. I've always had this image that there's one lighthouse keeper, you know, that lives on an island. But this was a a larger island with more to do. And so there were several lighthouse keepers. And her mother's job was to feed everybody. And she was really angry and unhappy about that. And so then there's a storyline of infidelity. And that's all I'm going to say. More happens. (laughs) But she painted a really good picture of what a li- the life of a lighthouse keeper, you know, living on an island and how insular that must be and how people relate to each other. So um, that was fun. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Again, Everything My Mother Taught Me by Alice Hoffman. I apologize if people can't get it. I will look more deeply into that and let yeah. you know in the next episode. I know sometimes authors have short stories available on their websites, too. Oh, you know, that's a thought. Yeah, I did read another one, but that was in this year that I'll talk about. It was uh, Todd Goldberg uh, published something. He's someone that I follow. I think I read it through social media or something, and it was a quick short story. Okay. And Todd is one of the hosts of uh, Literary Disco, Disco, right? Literary Disco. I forgot that I read that. And now I don't remember the title, so I'm not talking about it. But yeah, um, people do. That's true. That was on his website. Because it had been in one of those, um, what do you call them, anthologies mm-hmm. of short stories. And I had never heard of it. But that's a thought. I will go to Alice Hoffman's site and see if it might be available there. Cool. All right. So what are we talking about next? Biblio Adventures. We went on a big one together. We did. Uh, that a lot of people are talking about. It's the new adaptation of Little Women, the movie. By Greta Gerwig, the director. I think yeah. did she write the screenplay too. She did. Okay. She. I mean, I guess that's yeah. Like it's an adaptation, right? Mm-hmm. Because she definitely took a different turn with it. We went on a, at a matinee, a late in the day matinee, right? Yeah, like, I think it was like a three o'clock showing the day after Christmas. It released on Christmas Day, so we got there what maybe a half hour ahead of time, and the 
ticket seller was like, yeah, you should get in there. Like seats are really filling up. So we got in there and we did find two seats together and they sold out. And then when we were leaving the theater, there was another huge line of people waiting to get in. So it's great to see so many people seeing little women. And I know there's been a lot of talk, at least on Twitter, about men saying, well, some people tweeting that men in their lives were saying they weren't going to go see it. I'm not sure like how true that is or if that was just conversation starting or something. But in our audience and in pictures other people have posted, there's been a lot of men seeing it. Yeah, we had plenty of men there and there but there were very few young kids. It was mostly It was mostly middle aged people. Yeah. I think the guy at the end of our row could have been in his thirties. Mm -hmm. He seemed to be there alone. I'm not really sure. But yeah, a lot of um middle aged folks and up. And we decided not to talk about it as we walked out of the theater. So we have not talked about it at all. So I'm curious, Chris, did you like it? You know, I did like it. It was interesting to see or hear when people laughed or gasped and things like that in the comments. There was a gentleman behind us who said to whoever he was seeing the movie with in the scene, and this is spoiler rich, people, after Beth dies, the man was, because it cuts from... Joe and Marmy hugging to then a gravesite scene. And the man was behind us is like, did, did she die? Like, he's like, this movie is so cryptic. He was angry too. He, he was, yeah. He spit it out. He yeah. turned to his wife. He goes, this movie is cryptic. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, and I wondered about that. And I thought, well, I think it's pretty clear that look, when you cut from the mother and the sister crying to a funeral scene, I think that's pretty cut and dry that that is what happened. But, what did you think of that? Well, I mean, first, I want to just back up to say that for those listeners who haven't been around for a while from the <laughs> beginning of time, we did a summer of little women in back in 2018, because it was the anniversary of little women. Yes. So on episode, if you're interested on episode 53, we discussed little women, we read it and discussed it on episode 55. We discussed March by Geraldine Brooks which is from the point of view of the, or about the father. Of in the, Little Women. Uh, in yeah. Little Women. And then on episode 57, we discussed Anne Boyd Rue's book, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. The story of Little Women and why it still matters. So for me, going into the movie, you know, we had had, and that was for me the first time reading Little Women. Mm -hmm. I know you had read it in the past. So it was not completely fresh in my memory, but it was fresh enough. Mm -hmm. And then we also went to, Concord Mass and went to the Orchard House. And we talked with the executive director there. We right. also watched the Catherine Hepburn adaptation of the movie right. back in 2018. So yeah, so the story was very fresh in our minds. Yeah, Louisa May Alcott's life was very fresh in our minds. And I, I guess one of the things about um, this new adaptation is that Greta Gerwig made the decision to kind of morph some of Louisa May Alcott's life into the storyline of Little Women, more so than other adaptations have. And she said in a, in a brief interview I read, I haven't done a lot of reading yet, and I want to, about people, uh, what they have to say about this film. But she said she wanted to write the movie the way that Louisa May Alcott would have wanted it to be written. So yeah. at the end, it's not, it's very questionable whether or not Joe marries Professor Bear. Mm -hmm. It's not really made clear whether yeah. she does or not. He's kind of there, but he's not on equal footing with her sister's husbands. Right. So it's 
Yeah, and, th- and that was one of the big issues when Louisa May Alcott was writing the book. She didn't want Joe to ever get married. And the editor slash publisher said, no, that has to happen. Yeah, she has to marry or die, yeah, which yeah. was really in the 19th century what happened in so many uh, women's and girls' stories. Right. Or stories about women and girls, I should say. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny because what happened to me when we were reading Little Women and March and Anne Boyd Rue's book and then going to Concord House, I myself started to get really confused about what was the story of Little Women and what was Louisa May Alcott's life. Right. And so when I was watching the movie, I felt like I stepped right back into that confusion. Mm -hmm. And I do think that I do think if you hadn't read the book, it would have been a very confusing movie because she went back and forth in time. And I think the gentleman's feeling of it being cryptic was that the scenes with, um, it was Amy who died, right? Beth. Beth, I'm sorry. I always get those two confused. Sorry, Beth and Amy. (laughs) When Beth died, like right before that, she had been ice skating and it was the scene where she falls in the ice and she gets you know sick and then the scarlet fever and then there's a scene where they're at the beach joe is taking her to the beach to for you know to recuperate and that's for an illness that happens much later in her life and so i do think it was very confusing Mm -hmm. and slightly cryptic i mean it wasn't cryptic that she had died i agree with you but it was you know the back and forth in time i kept thinking okay is joe's hair short is it long (laughs) like i was trying to find yeah identifiers for that myself yeah And, and i do have to say my one my one criticism of the movie is that I'm I'm really tired of the back and the forth in mm. movies and in books. Hmm. I just kind of feel like can no one tell a straightforward story anymore without the back and the forth, the shorthand. Mm-hmm. To me, it's getting a little bit. It's kind of like flashbacks. You know, they're they're just. It's a device, it I is feel, a device, and yeah. and I think that's of course a way to pack more into a movie because you only have so much time, right? novelists are doing all the time too and it is getting a little bit old for me Mm -hmm. as a reader yeah so I mean I I didn't I I loved it I thought it was beautiful to watch and I thought the acting was fantastic Mm -hmm. there were a few things that I thought wait a second this is confusing like there's a point where they're having a feast and Louisa May Alcott and her family were impoverished and their father had beliefs that you know they weren't supposed to eat very much and they'd survived I'm using air quotes on like apples you know and they were really hungry so there was that scene with a feast and I was like wait a minute Mm -hmm. they didn't have a lot of food I know well that was the feast that Mr. Laurie sends over so that again if you don't know the story you're like what what the hell right that was kind of a big jump yeah um I have a friend uh Jennifer who has taught little women and one of her criticisms was that you don't see that they're poor. Mm-hmm. You don't see it. They say it, but you don't see it. And I think that is, and you and you don't know why either, you know, in the context of the book. I guess you do, well, in the context of the book, it's because the father is off at the war. Same thing with the movie. Um, but then when you think about Louisa May Alcott's life, that's when I start getting angry because Bronson Alcott was such a negligent father and husband mm-hmm. that um you know he left his kids and wife to basically starve and left them with very strong opinions about how they would live their life mm-hmm. you know and and there is the scene i thought that was great that greta gerwig pulled out that you had pulled out when you read little women about how marmy is feels angry every day yes. of her life yeah but again it wasn't really explained why where right. does that anger come from? And I agree with the the destitution. There's the scene where Joe cuts her hair off. 
and sells it for money, mm-hmm. you know, but then it, they don't really appear to be needing money. It's kind of a funny situation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I did like a spoiler again. Also, at the very end, there's a scene. It's kind of meta where Joe's watching Little Women, the book being produced. Yeah. And I loved the way they showed like back in the day how books were, you know, they set the typeset and they printed it and they sewed it together and bound it in leather and put this beautiful imprint on it, you know, and just I really enjoyed that part but it was also very meta because she's watching the book of little women being made right (laughs) which was really a cool ending I thought because it does highlight the fact that you know instead of ending in her marriage which is the traditional ending it's almost like she is at the window in a delivery room where all the babies are laid out you know watching her book being created or made you know her creation coming to life in the form that other people can hold it. And I thought that was really kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, there was a lot of confusion, I guess. Yeah. If you don't know the story, it's so hard because, you know, when a story's been in your mind for so long, it's hard to step back and think, what would it be like for somebody who doesn't know anything? Right. To step in. Yeah. I mean, and, I'd and be curious this. to talk to someone who saw it and had never read the book. Yeah. Because it's also, you know, impossible to not have all of that, as you said, that backstory in your head. Um, right but and, and, and so recent for us which was nice and i'm really happy about the movie i love i thought it was beautiful yeah i enjoyed it i mean i enjoyed every minute of it but mm-hmm. i just did think that you know it was a little cryptic as yeah. the movie <laughs> <said>. <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so that was a great biblio adventure yeah, i enjoyed it was that really it, was, fun. it was nice to see that and yeah. i would totally go see it again mm-hmm yeah, I think so, too. I think it's worth a rewatch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also went and saw another movie that was based on a book, and it's the movie Jojo Rabbit by Taka Watiti. And it's based on the book Caging Skies by Christine Lunens, which I didn't know that it was based on a book until the credits were rolling. Mm-hmm. But it's a it, it if you're a fan of Wes Anderson movies, I would highly recommend this one. But it is a World War II Hitler movie. And it's a comedy that some people might not appreciate it as a comedy in the sense that Hitler is this the young boy in the stories. What do you call that? The invisible friend? No, imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. That's the word they use. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well done. And I would like to read the book. I, I read one review that says that Taika Waititi took great artistic license. It's much different than the book, but it has the basic idea of the book. Which probably is something for us to remember when we're talking about Little Women, too. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, the idea, the bones of the story, but being able to take your own... Your own take on it. Well, and yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Greta did a fantastic job with adapting the book and incorporating Louise May Alcott's real life. You know, there were times when I was watching the movie, like scenes in New York. It's just like, yeah, that's Joe. That's not Louise May Alcott. Right, exactly. You know, so. <laughs> but I, like I said, I had that problem when we were doing the whole read along. So, yeah. Um, but I also have to tell you, it was really funny. After I went and saw that movie, Jojo Rabbit, the gentleman caller and I went out to supper and we parked in this parking lot and there were three restaurants right where we were parked and we're walking out and I pass a car that has three bumper stickers on it. One was Northshire Books, 
The other was Bear Pond Books, and the third was R.J. Julia. Wow. And I turned to Jim, and I'm like, I have to know who this person is. <laughs> this is one of my people. Yeah. I mean, to put three bookstore bumper stickers on your car, there was nothing else on the car. And he turned to me, and he was like, and how exactly do you plan to go about doing that? He said, you know, perhaps you'll walk into one of the three restaurants here, and there'll be someone reading. That could be your, you know. <laughs> Anyway, he didn't want to do a, a midnight stakeout. No, <laughs> nor did he want me to walk into the store and be like, uh, or the restaurant. Hey, who owns the blah, yeah. blah, blah, <laughs> Northshire and see if someone turns their head. So I didn't find the person. But that's great. Though. Yeah, cool. I was really excited to see and I could have stalked, I suppose, based on license plate, but I didn't go that far. So. <laughs> well, I had two bookstores uh, new bookstores that I went to that Ooh. I'd not been to before. One is a brand new place called Puck's Books in Essex, Connecticut. I walked in and I walked out because as I was walking in, I got a phone call to go pick up somebody who I had to, you know, meet. Um, so I said to the new owner, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, are you new? He's like, yeah, I just opened like within the last two weeks. I was like, oh my God, that's fantastic. I'll be back. Uh, this store focuses on rare and used. It's antiquarian. Mm. Again, that's Pucks Books in Essex, and I don't think they have a website up yet. I, I looked, um, and I didn't see anything yet. The other bookstore I went to was here in Guilford. It was uh, the bookstore for the Monastery of Our Lady of Grace, which is a monastery here in town, which I had driven by before. And I knew that they had a bookstore, but I hadn't been there. But we needed a new St. Joseph for mm -hmm. selling on our house we needed to double up um so i was like i'll go get a st joseph so they were open and i went and so this bookstore opened or i should say the monastery itself opened in 1947. i'm not sure how long they have have had the bookstore associated with it but it's it's for catholic clientele but they had a great selection of books um you know statuary cards greeting cards prayer cards rosaries um, but they did have a copy of the complete short stories of flannery o'connor oh interesting which i almost bought but i said no i'm not I'm, I'm not on a book buying ban but i'm trying to really focus on the books i already own yeah so to say so that was a, a really nice experience to go um, and have a good browse there at the store yeah. as well as pick up a new St. Joseph and, statue for selling the house. Because, you know, he's the saint where they say if you bury him upside down facing the house, it can help you sell it. Yeah. And then I actually talked with somebody who said there's also the theory that you put him in upside down facing away to the house to help you find the new home that you want to buy. Ah, but you already did that, so you yeah, don't need to do that. Exactly. Yeah. We just need to yeah. sell the old house. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so that was uh, two new bookstores um, on my list. And so it's Dominican nuns, and there are 23 nuns there at this time. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. That's cool. Yeah, and they do, they do silent retreats there and things like that. So I want to look into that because yeah. I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. Are you allowed to read? I don't know anything about it. I'll have to ask. Yeah, let me know. Because I would, I would be into that. Well, see, I have a fantasy <laughs> of like going somewhere where like people bring me meals and I just lay there and read yeah. and go for walks in the woods mm -hmm. and meals keep appearing. Yeah. Wouldn't that be lovely? I think that's called an all-inclusive resort, <laughs> <laughs> which I've never vacationed at, but it sounds lovely. Or a cruise, but cruises kind of give me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. I'm a little too claustrophobic. I don't know if I could do that. Upcoming adventures. 
Well, I have two things on my list that are coming up. This Saturday is the Dracula premiere on Netflix. They've done a miniseries that looks pretty good. So I'll be glued to my TV on Saturday. Are you going to binge the whole thing, you think? It depends on how scary it is. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it does look good. My only concern is that from some of the previews that I saw, there looks like there might be some zombie action. Mm. And I really don't like it when vampires are equated with zombies because I think they're two very different creatures. Yeah. Um, But the guy who plays Dracula, I'm sorry I didn't write his name down, looks pretty good. Okay. Handsome, but not too handsome. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And then also, uh, the New Haven Public Library, on the 15th of this month, they're having an introduction to their his- history room, their local history room. Um, and I've been in there before and, and had a browse, but I thought it would be fun to have an hour session with the librarian who oversees that area to learn how to use it more productively. And then she's also, or he, I'm not sure if it's a he or she, um, will give an overview of some of the electronic databases used for local history research and, you know, ancestry research and things like that. So it is one of those things. It's a limited spaces available. You do have to register. Uh, but if you go to the main New Haven Public Library website, you could check that out if you're a local person. And that sounds interesting. Cool. And that's right on the green. It's really easy to get to. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, we have a joint jaunt coming up in February. It's a little far away still, but we are going to join Aunt Ellen and go see the Broadway, or I don't know, it's an off-Broadway production, I think, of My Name is Lucy Barton, which is based on the novel by Elizabeth Strout of Olive Kittredge fame as well. Yeah. Starring and Laura Linney. Laura Linney. It's a solo show. So, yeah. yeah love yeah. her. And then we talked about this already, but January 23rd, um, Janine Cummins, the author of American Dirt, is going to be here talking about that debut that comes out on January 21st. So that's right. right around the corner. Yeah. I'm still up and debating whether or not I'm going to read it or not. It's a tough read. Because you said it was a tough read. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I want to start my year with that quite. It's dark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so now next up, we are going to be talking about our top reads of 2019. So these are not necessarily books published in 2019. They're just books that we read and loved in 2019. So some of them are from 1800s. Others might be coming up in 2020. Right. Because we do read those advanced reader copies. Yeah. But we want to stick to what we have read because we're all about reading here. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there needs to be too many rules. I have a really hard time picking favorites as people who have listened in the past know. But I did it. Excellent. And I didn't overthink it. I just I had I opened up my Goodreads challenge is what I did because I have all the books I've read in there. And I just did it based on my reaction, Mm -hmm. which was generally, oh, I loved that book. Yeah. That's pretty much (laughs) what I did, too. Yeah. 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 And it's so fun to look at it and be reminded, too, of the things you read a year ago. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did is I separated them out into genre. Oh, okay. So how do you want to do this? Well, do you have like a nonfiction category? Yeah. What were your favorite nonfiction reads? I just chose one, and it was Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions by Valeria Luiselli. I loved that book. And it also just overarchingly, I noticed I didn't read as much nonfiction as I usually do, Hmm. which I thought was just an interesting observation. I don't know why that happened. Yeah, interesting. I I haven't compiled like my stats for Mm -hmm. the year, which I usually do. 
So I'm not really sure, but I have a feeling I read more fiction this year than nonfiction. Usually it's kind of half and half for me, mm. but it yeah. seems like fiction might have taken over this year, which could have been indicative of my stress level, you right. know, because when I'm, you know, I had a lot of stuff going on. Um, so it's just easier to sink into a novel than to have to focus on a nonfiction where for me anyway, I, I, you know, really like to pay more attention and take notes and things like that. Yeah. So what was your favorite nonfiction? Well, I have three that I wrote down. I, I did really enjoy Prairie Fires by Carolyn Frazier about Laura Ingalls Wilder. Why Religion? That was by Elaine Pagels. And I listened to that on audio, and it was a great audio book. I thought the narrator did a fantastic job. And then Wild Bill. Remember that book I yeah. read uh, by Tom Clavin back earlier in the year? And that was about Wild Bill Hickok and incorporate a lot of the history of the frontier days and everything so thinking about that with prairie fires they kind of bounced off each other a little bit yeah those are great i had a favorite memoir oh cool how we fight for our lives by saeed jones and he's getting the praise i hoped he would get for that book it's a fantastic read i highly recommend it that's cool that's on my list for this year for sure well my favorite memoir would be again that why religion yeah by elaine pagels yeah so fiction, did you break down fiction? I did. Well, I also, I did a short story collection oh, also. Cool. So should I say that one? Yeah. Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Mm-hmm. That one just blew my mind. Talk about darkness. It's dark, but he just really, to me, just upended the way that I thought about or look at certain things, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and even just the way he took the term Black Friday and turned it backwards to make the title, I thought just is gives you insight into what he did in the book. And then, yeah, then I have novels and I have uh, debuts. Oh, debuts. I didn't yeah. break mine out that way. That's interesting. Yeah. What were your favorite debuts? It was a tie. I don't really need to say that. I just chose to, I guess. <laughs> That's the way to say it. Miracle Creek by Angie Kim. And The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames. I loved both of those. Nice. I'm looking over my list here, and I I do see a debut novel. Um, I had three mysteries that made my list. Ain't Nobody Nobody by Heather Harper Ellett, which Mm -hmm. we recently had on as a new buddy of ours. And then A Student of History by Nina Revoir. I really love that one. That was from earlier in the year, a mystery uh, set in L.A. And then Peter Heller's The River Mm -hmm. that I think I started the year with. That's not a debut, though. No, it's not a debut. No, I'm sorry. The only debut was Ain't Nobody Nobody. Okay, gotcha. I don't even, I'm not sure if A Student of History was Nina's first book or her second even. Okay, Um, I was confused. Yeah, those are just like my, the three mysteries that I, um, that popped out. Okay, keep going with your novels. I want to hear. Okay, so the other novels, I really loved Free Food for Millionaires. Mm -hmm. That was a great read and one that I still find myself thinking a lot about by Min Jin Lee. The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Love that. I think this one, it might be my standout novel of the year, um, but it's The Museum of Modern Love by Heather Rose, which I read for the Australian Women Writers uh, Challenge that I participate in. And that was a, about a cast of characters around um, an exhibit at the New York Museum of Modern Art. Right. And I find myself still thinking about that story, not just the story itself, but how it was written. And, and I really like the sentiment there. 
Next was True Grit by Charles Portis, which is one of our read-alongs from last year. Yeah. And again, that book also really went well with Prairie Fires and the Wild Bill biography. Yeah. And these are in no order. I yeah. just, you know, yeah. like you did, I went through my Goodreads list. I also really enjoyed The Invited by Jennifer McMahon, which was kind of horror oh, right. type novel yeah. about a couple who they don't move into a haunted house. They build a haunted house in <laughs> Vermont. So creepy. Really like that. They had some cool historical stuff going on in it as well. Jonah's Gourdvine was an excellent read uh, that was by Zora Neale Hurston. I had read Their Eyes Were Watching God and really enjoyed that novel. So um, I do want to read more by her. Yeah, so, and then I have uh, a favorite reread, which was Safira and the Slave Girl by Cather, which I really loved. And I listened to it on audio, and it was a really good audio book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I mentioned when I talked about it on uh, the past episode, like my hands were clenched as I was driving down the road reading it. And then my favorite classic and the book that had been on my TBR for the longest that I finally got to was Middlemarch. By George Eliot. I'm so happy yeah. that I finally read that one and really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good to tackle something like that and then feel the accomplishment of it. I say as I look at Shantaram, which is the <laughs> book that haunts me on my bookshelf. Now, you know what? If you read that one at bed, that could potentially kill you, Emily. Yes. So I would advise that you do not read that one before bed. Yes, that's right. I think it's a thousand pages. It, yeah. is, a, it is a paperback, not a hardback at least, but... <laughs> Well, the novels that I had were also The River. So I think that's the only book that we share on our list by Peter Heller. And then Ask Again, Yes by Mary Beth Keene. I loved that book. I also did have to ponder the fact that that's the one I read on vacation. And you always have to wonder if that's part of why it becomes mm -hmm. your favorite. You know what? That's so true, though. It's like it's when you read a book. Yes. It has such an impact. Oh, my gosh. So much. Yeah. And what yeah. came before it and yeah. what you read yeah. next. Yeah. What the weather's like. I mean, it can be all sorts of things. American Dirt by Janine Cummins. And then If You Want to Make God Laugh by Bianca Murray. Mm -hmm. I really loved that book. I think it's cool, though, that three of your favorites are read-alongs of ours. Right? That's really kind of cool. Yeah, because I was going to yeah. just revisit that our read-alongs in 2019 were True Grit, Free Food for Millionaires, Gone with the Wind, and Safira and the Slave Girl. Right, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I had two honorable mentions as well. Like, I was trying to keep my list to 10, which I did not do. So I thought, well, honorable mentions. So for there, I did have If You Want to Make God Laugh by Bianca Murray, which okay. I really enjoyed. And then also Where the Crawdad Sing. Yeah, I liked that one, too. I thought about putting that one on my list. Yeah. It's... I didn't. I didn't even do ten. I was. I was trying to be very conservative. Usually, it's so hard for me to decide, but I just thought, just go with your gut reaction. Totally. Yeah. But if I made the list tomorrow, it would probably be different. Caveat. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah, because there's so many really good books too, and I just tried to be. I tried to be conservative with myself. Yeah. But well, yeah. you know, good list. Yeah. Well, you had written something on social media and on your blog that was about your reading goals or reading challenges for 2020. I decided I wanted to be really careful about that because I don't want to put too much pressure on my reading mm -hmm. or make my reading feel too precious, right. which I feel like I could do in the way my brain works. But um, I do every year sign up for the Goodread Challenge on Goodreads because I think it's just a great way to track your reading. Mm -hmm. And I always sign up that my challenge that I said is 52 books, which is a book a year. A week. I, 
a week a book a year oh god <laughs> a book a week yes i do math for a living <laughs> And I realized as I was looking at my, because I did this, it was already 2020. So I had to be looking at my a previous challenge, right? Because I'm looking at 2019. And I learned by doing that, that I've done this since 2013, which That's I had right. no idea. And I've set different numbers. I think the past three years, I've done 52 books, but I did my average just out of curiosity oh. of what I actually read. And the average is 67 books okay. a year which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. But I have, again, for 2020, set it for 52. And then the only thing I want to think about as far as how to read, I kind of already talked about, is that I have so many short story collections on my shelf. And the way that I typically read short story collections is like a novel. Mm -hmm. You know, I start on page one and I read through them. And so sometimes I just don't pick them up because of that. Yeah. So I really want to be more flexible with my short story reading you know, it's kind of a funny thing, like you get like, I'm looking at my bookshelf, I have a best American short stories anthology, and I will pick those up and read one out of that. And I think it's because it's all different authors. But the collections I have that are a singular author, I let just sit on my shelf because I think, oh, I don't want to read that whole collection. Well, I don't have to, I can read one, right? You know, totally. So I really want to get in the habit of that. And the same with my essay collections, I want to, you know, pick one up and or pick up the book and just read an essay. So that's going to be one of my goals is to sprinkle that through and maybe between novels or books, you know, just say, okay, read a short story today and then start a new book tomorrow. Right. You know, yeah. So it sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I had done my post. I do an annual. I, I mean, in November, as I said in that post that I wrote, in November, I always think I'm not doing any reading challenges next year. I'm just going to free range it, you know. But then by the time December rolls around, I get excited again about the reading challenges. So my main goal or plan for 2020 is to read books that I already own mm -hmm. because, you know, I went through a couple calls of my book shelves in preparing to move uh, last year. So the books that I still have at home are books I've already read and loved and have decided to keep, or they're ones that I know that I want to read. So my plan is to read them. Mm, um, so like one of the challenges that popped up, it's a new challenge. It's uh, read more German books in 2020. It's um, by uh, two booktubers are joining to, to uh, host this. It's Mel from Mel's Bookland Adventures and then uh, Britta Bowler of The Second Shelf. And I watch their channels regularly, and I know that they'll do a great job hosting it. And I also know that I have a stack of books that have been translated from German. So that is one that I'm doing to help me uh, get those books read. Mm. So I try, I have to walk a, a set up a fine line for myself. I do like to do the challenges and have a little guidance and have things on my mind. Because like with Australian women writers, that challenge I've been doing it for years now and it keeps it in my mind to seek them out because Australian literature just is not a big thing here in America. Hmm. So you really have to make more of an effort to find them to read. So that's why I keep doing that one. Cause you know, I sign up to read four a year and the last two years I've only read three, but they've been three really good books. Well, I was going to say, know. I mean, you discovered Emma Vis Viskitch because that of way. that right you know? exactly yeah. and the museum of modern love was one i read for that right. so i do like to do those but 
I can't be really specific with myself either because then I rebel. Right. Like I'll make these beautiful lists and I love making lists of books, but then I don't read them because I just rebel, Mm -hmm. which is silly. I know I'm the one making the list. You'd think I'd be happy to check it off, but I just have some kind of resistance about that. So I try to keep the challenges that I do sign up for kind of on the vague side. Yeah, but you seem, I mean, at least, you know, I'm not in your brain, but (laughs) from the observer, (laughs) it seems like you are actually really good about not putting pressure on yourself to achieve. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like by making the list, I think it helps you develop the idea. Right. And then how you pursue the idea has, you're gentle with yourself around it, which I think is really important. Because just because you want to read a certain thing doesn't mean it's the right time to read it. Exactly. Right. You know, definitely. I feel that way a lot Um, because, you know, when in the past I've had that pressure just from school to read certain things at certain times and it almost killed my love of reading. Right. So when I left school, I thought I'm not going to be like that anymore. And that's when I had resolved to read 52 books a year. I thought one a week. That is sane. That's doable, you know. Um, And now I don't even think about it. I just I think one year from doing these Goodreads, the challenge, I think one year I set it at 60, but I think every other year it's been 52. I don't really look at it when I log in. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just something there. And every now and then I'll notice it. I'll say you're two books ahead or you're two books behind. And it doesn't stress me out Mm -mm. like it would have in the past when I had to read X amount of whatever. But a cool thing about the Goodreads challenge is you, when you look at the stats page, you can look at not only the number of books you've read, but the number of pages. I know there have been some years when I've read fewer books, but actually more pages. Cause you, oh, I've never looked at that. Yeah, yeah, you read something like, you know, Gone at the Wind, right. that's a thousand pages. And that's, you know, like the equivalent of three or four books. Right, or Middlemarch. Yeah. Right, you know. Yeah. So that's a fun thing to look at as well. And then I know I have tried to keep, well, I used to just keep a list, a written list. Um, but I've had spreadsheets and I do have a spreadsheet for 2019 that I need to update with different categories because I'm always interested to see like nonfiction versus fiction, men versus women, mm-hmm. what nationalities. Yeah, I, I mean, don't spend any time looking at any of that because I feel like I could be reading instead. <laughs> But yeah. it would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that they track some of I mean, I'll look at the stats page mm-hmm. and see what they track. Yeah, it's mainly just that. It's mainly yeah. just, I think, pages and stuff. Because if you really want to get into, um, you know, tracking your reading, like if you want to read more, like, say, people of color or LGBT fiction or make sure you're reading, you know, X amount by women, uh, having your own spreadsheet is a good way to do right. that because it just lets you see. Because I'm so delusional. I'm, I'm delusional about <laughs> Sometimes the books I read, the food I eat, you know, it could be like, oh, I haven't had a hamburger in a long time. It's like, I just had one yesterday. Yeah. Oh, just at lunch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's the same thing like with, you know, this, like, I'm sure I'm reading. I mean, I think most of my reading is by women these days, but it it hadn't always been the case, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in the context of school. Right. Yeah. Well, one other thing I wanted to just mention is one thing we hear from readers all the time is how do you and Chris read so much? How do you get the time? And one of the things that I've committed to more recently is putting my phone aside and is putting my, you know, iPad, like when I read on my Kindle, it's on the iPad, which is you really have to set yourself a standard to not do a little, you know, Google search for something in the middle of it, because Mm -hmm. then a half an hour escapes. But I also find that I have trouble 
setting aside time for reading because I work for myself. So it feels like cheating. I mean, my work is always here, always in the house with me. Mm -hmm. So I've started to use a timer more as well. That's so funny. I have been too. Oh, really? We haven't talked about this. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I'll set a timer and say, you can read for half an hour Mm -hmm. and this is your break. Mm -hmm. Just like you, if you worked in an office, you might be having some water cooler talk, you know, or just talking with your cube mate or whatever. And so I've really been using a timer more and I find that I focus my reading more when I do that because I know that the timer is going to go off and it's just a, a finite amount of time I've given myself to read. Yeah. And then you don't, for me, when I use the timer, it's really nice because I don't worry. Mm-hmm. I don't think about anything other than the words on the page. Right. And it's just really uh, kind of a relief Yeah. to not be worrying about the clock or whatever, to just be sinking in, into the story again. Right. But the other answer to that question, listeners, is Chris and I get really crabby if we don't read. So it's good for everyone around us if we get some time to sneak away and lose ourselves in a good book. Yeah. Well, I really trained myself to to wake up and read. I used to not be able to do that. I don't like to talk for like the first two hours that I wake up. Um, Important to know if you're ever on vacation with Chris. (laughs) (laughs) But I do. I did train myself to wake up and be able to read. And so that's great. So, you know, that first hour in the morning can be dedicated to that. It's my favorite thing. And I'm an early riser. So I actually love it when Jim spends the night. I love it for multiple reasons. But also, he often has to get up and go to work really early. And so we'll be up at 530. And I'm like, ooh, this is the perfect time to snuggle back into bed. Sorry, Jim, you're going to work (laughs) and read for an hour, you know. So I do adore my morning reading time. And I like it because the world's quiet and my brain seemingly is a little bit more quiet. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I know um, with all of this conversation on Twitter about people sharing their lists and everything, some celebrities said, I'm not buying all these lists of people, you know, with all these big lists of books that they read. And, you know, a couple of bloggers chimed in saying, hey, you know, if you make reading a priority, it happens. Because yeah. if you really do track your time, and that's something that I did years ago, like I track my time for a whole week to see how I actually spend my time. There were so many opportunities for reading mm-hmm. that were spent with frivolous things. And I'm sure... It's even worse with the internet now and phones, you know. Well, we hope for you all that you get plenty of reading time this year. And please feel free to send us an email or get on social media and let us know what your goals for the year are. That'd be fun. Or if you want to send us your favorite reads, you know, we'd love to know that too. That would be great. And you could just use the hashtag book cougars anywhere and we'll find it that way. And if you have suggestions on how you get more reading time into your day, that could be fun too to share with them to other listeners. Yeah, for sure. We would love to hear that. We basically want to hear anything bookish about your life. Right. Or just about your life if you're so interested to share. <laughs> well, that could open up a big can of worms. Hey, we're we're willing. <laughs> So up next is our interview with author Jess Montgomery discussing the second book in the Kinship series. The Hollows, which comes out January 14th. Right around the corner. Happy Happy reading. reading. Today, we're so excited to have with us author Jess Montgomery. She's here talking with us about the second book in the Kinship series, The Hollows. For those of you who don't know, Jess was on with us on episode 68 to talk about the first book, The Widows, in the series. So welcome back, Jess. It's great to see you again. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. 
I guess we can see you because we're Skyping. That's right. Listeners will be happy to hear your voice again. Yeah, we're very excited to have you back. And listeners, just so you know, The Hollows publication date is January 14th. So just around the corner. The Widows, obviously, since it's the first in the series, is out. So you can run to get that first if you want. Yeah, Yeah, so to get things started, Jess, if you wouldn't mind uh, just taking a minute or two to tell our listeners about The Hollows. Okay. Uh, well, as you mentioned, it's it's the sequel to The Widows, although it can be read as a standalone. Uh, but it starts out in uh, the fall of 1926, and my protagonist, Lily Ross, has been sheriff in, in the stead of her husband, the sheriff, having been killed in the line of duty. And now, in 1926, she's running, not on a special election, but full out to be sheriff in her own right. So she's in the middle of a campaign season. And I'll note that in real life, the the female sheriff, Maude Collins, who inspired uh, Lily, also ran for election in her own right in 1926 and won by a landslide, which I think is fascinating, given that it was Appalachian, Ohio, 1926. I won't reveal if Lily wins or not, but I will say that her campaign isn't as smooth <laughs> as uh, Maud's, for sure. And the, and the inciting incident to the to the book is an elderly woman is killed on the railroad track in a very remote part of the county in a tunnel, a railroad tunnel, and nobody knows who she is. There's no identification on her. Of course, DNA testing wasn't a thing then, fingerprinting was, but probably not in that part of of the country. In any case, there wouldn't have been fingerprints for this woman. And so nobody knows who she is. And Lily's kind of has the thought and is also nudged that she could just let this go. But she realizes if she's going to be sheriff, then everybody matters. The rule of law matters for everyone. Investigation matters for everyone. So she takes on this case to find out who this woman is. um, And in the course of doing so, under uncovers some pretty dark parts of her county's history um, and some current, as in 1926, uh, goings on in her county that she hadn't been aware of, including a a group of the WKKK, which was the women's KKK, its own group. They weren't just sewing hoods for the men folk. (laughs) They were, you know, their own group. And she investigates that and and gets involved as well in investigating in the nearby, what was then called the Lunatic Asylum uh, in nearby Athens County. So there are all these elements that kind of weave together. Um, It's also told from the point of view of her friend Hildy, who is a, a sort of minor supporting character in The Widows. But Hildy has her own Uh, narrative arc of growth to kind of figure out who she is as a human being and who she is as a woman. She's all along just kind of been following social expectations and family expectations. And now she's, you know, figuring it out for herself. So those two storylines kind of interweave. And it's also really a lot about um, personal haunts. So Lily's haunted by the loss of her husband and has some guilt that she's really loves being a sheriff and knows she wouldn't have been if he hadn't died. And she's haunted by that. And of course the County and the community is kind of haunted by these past um, events that come to light as she investigates. Right. Now, Emily has already read the book. I'm, I have about a hundred pages to go. I was, I'm I'm so excited to, to get home after this recording and finish it. I was kind of blown away by the whole 
woman's KKK yes. movement and groups. I had, I didn't know that they existed. So that was a pretty big shocker. Um, and I wanted to ask you in part about a Quaker woman that you mentioned who is from Indiana <laughs> inciting women to join such groups. Was she a real person? Is she based on a real? Yes. Wow. Absolutely real. Yeah. I, I too was, so my writing method for this book was I, I knew about the, the setting for the tunnel with the railroad tracks and the Moonvale tunnel. And I knew about the asylum and I knew that I wanted Lily to kind of feel haunted. And then I thought, okay, but I need to weave in some interesting aspect of 1926 history. So I just started reading about 1926 and I came across this reference to the WKKK and I, my jaw dropped and I thought, what? No, <laughs> this can't be. And I started digging and, and read some academic treatises and a book about it. And I have to say it was it was really hard to dig into that history. And I think part of it was me having a little bit of my own bubble of thinking, well, women wouldn't think that way. And so I had to come over, overcome my own desire to to, to think that way, to, to understand that humans whatever their their gender identification are going to have a wide variety of views and so I it took me a while just to get my head wrapped around that and then I thought oh of course we have to juxtapose that with yes the underground railroad and and the Quakers of that area and there you know there's not a lot of specific history that I could dig up, but I knew it was possible that people would have been aided in their escape to freedom on the Underground Railroad in that part of Ohio. I spent a lot of time at the Freedom Museum in Cincinnati as well. And then I, I of course, knew the Quakers were involved in this. And then I ran across this this woman, Daisy, oh, I'm going to space on her last name. Um, but yeah, she was a real person. She is a historical figure. And the poem that I quote from her is really one that she had about true Americans and, and, and what that meant, which of course meant white native born, uh, Protestant. Mm -hmm. That was their definition. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was a shocker. And, uh, I really struggled with like, do I want to weave this in? And I thought, you know, if you're going to write historical fiction, then you have to weave in the negative with the positive and, and how those elements play off. So, Yeah, I agree, and I think that's what makes reading historical fiction, whether it's mystery or literary fiction of the historical variety, it, it gives you a little bit of context for what's going on today in a right. way that, you know, what's going on today is nothing new, and um, right. these, these movements seem to come and go in American culture. Well, and that they do and the yeah. history that they're based on and that and the thing that's always shocking to me too is to think about it wasn't that long ago you know right yeah and so yeah. that and, and the other thing about reading historical fiction to me there's always that moment and I definitely had that with this like oh that can't be true and I you know this is just just as you know she's <laughs> she's taking some you know artistic license she's, she's embellishing a, right? well, or you're creating a story I mean that's what you're doing and yeah. that's part of what right. happens is right. some of it's created and is fiction and some of it's based on fact. And so I did, I had to scurry over to the Google and read about it. And sure enough, I was shocked. And, and it's always yeah. shocking too, that there, you know, it can be 
the people that the community think of as the most upstanding individuals. And then under cover of darkness and under cover of hood, in this mm -hmm. case, they have a completely mm -hmm. different world that they're living in. And it's really surprising. Absolutely. And Lily does have that moment, uh, has a moment where she's standing on the steps of, of the courthouse in her county and she's just watching people walk past that she thinks, you know, she's known all of her life and she finds herself wondering how well do I really know my neighbors? Right. You know, how well do I, re I mean, I assume these things sure. about them, but how well do I really know? So, right. yeah. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to touch on, Jess, is, is the um, Ohio University. My daughter went to Ohio University, and there's this whole <laughs> stretch of buildings that are referred to as the ridges. And it's where right? there historically was this mental health, or at the time, they called it an insane asylum, right? right. And for the kids who go to school there, it's kind of a place that if you're feeling really brave, you might, you know, have a drink and then go take a walk in the ridges and dark, you know, and scare all of your friends and stuff. So I, wa <laughs> I, I wanted to talk, I mean, it, it was kind of such a fun feeling because that area of the country is so beautiful. And I spent such it's, lovely yeah. time going to visit my daughter there. But you really paint a completely different picture of the ridges <laughs> back in the day. Can you talk about researching it and how you brought it yeah. into the novel? Well, my younger daughter also went to Ohio University. So I, I like you, I spent uh, lovely afternoons and weekends visiting uh, over the years. And you're right, there, there are these buildings that are called the Ridges, and part of them are, uh, and it's all owned by the university now, all those buildings. And some of the space is used by the university. So there's a, a, an art gallery in there. There's some administrative offices. And um, one of the buildings is the recycling center. And I am not a big woo-woo, like ghost, believe in ghost type person. But I will admit that one on one of those visits, I dropped her off to work at the recycling center. And usually I'm like, oh, another hug. Oh, another, let's say goodbye. And I'm like, bye. <laughs> dilapidated buildings or she didn't feel that at all yeah so it was a functional asylum from the like 1890s up until I think um, the last residents left I'm gonna say early 70s maybe and I went over to do a tour of what they now call the ridges um, and it was great because the gentleman who was leading the tour is a local historian of the area. And he just started out by saying, look, if any of you are here because you want to hear ghost stories and you want to see, you know, where because um, there's a spot where a person passed away and there's a stain supposedly mm -hmm. from the body. If you want to see that, if you want to do it, you're on the wrong tour. This is fact based. And I'm going to talk about the history of the asylum and about half the people left oh, and wow. <laughs> the rest of us. Yeah, they peeled off like, no we wanted ghost stories but I was thrilled because I didn't want ghost stories I wanted the history and on that tour that's where I learned a lot of what I and then I also read another historical book about the facility and, and their work and it was just really interesting to realize that from the point of view of the people who built the facility and worked the facility, especially through the, you know, through, through the whole time, they were doing the best they could with the knowledge they had. Mm -hmm. um, of course there were abuses, of course there was cruelty, but the medicine at the time was, you know, the, the best they had. There were medicines or treatments for schizophrenia in the 1890s. 
that we have now, for example. And it was really compelling to hear that, well, this was a place that, you know, with these beautiful gardens where just people from around the surrounding area would come on a Sunday picnic mm. and have a picnic. Or lovers from the university would, you know, walk the grounds. And meanwhile, residents are working the grounds because the notion at the time was that outdoor work and exercise and being in nature was the best treatment that was available for people with these mental health issues. So it was really fascinating to, to look at it from that point of view and think about a location like that as if it's, you know, in, in that time. So for Lily, it was very present. It was very, it would have been very real, not a spooky ghost story type place. Right. So, right. And it would have made sense that someone could have escaped from there as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And walking those grounds and seeing, because there was sort of a belief in, you know, they, they kind of had the most uh, functioning, uh, residents in the cottages or in the uh, far furthest out portions of the wings um, of the asylum. So depending on why you were there, and of course, why you could be there as a female <laughs> could have been, you know, you were going through menopause. Exactly. And yeah. it got a little emotional one day. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. documented cases like this or, oh, goodness, you're being hysterical or, oh, I'm tired of being married to you or, yeah. you know, whatever. So there were all kinds of reasons that we would never have have a person, hopefully, in an institution today that would have been more common back then. So there was, you know, a little bit more freedom for people to escape and walk around. And one of the things the gentleman leading the tour said was, you know, sometimes people would escape and, and they'd go to their families in the town and then they'd say, yeah, I don't know, I like being with my family. I think I'll go back <laughs> to the asylum. <laughs> Which, you know, it was a little more comfortable family. back there. Yeah. yeah. Never yeah. mind. I get three squares and a bed there. Exactly. So I. <laughs> well, that's really interesting juxtaposition too with like Lily's grief that she's going through and her mental process with that you know, juxtaposed with this insane asylum, you know, cause Lily right. even says at one point that being in nature helps her. Mm-hmm. There's a line, I, I don't remember it exactly. And um, so that with the garden, then it's just, it's a really nice connection. Um, those two stories have, or those yeah. two lines in the story have. Yeah. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about Jess also is the, um, the, the really the idea of grief in this book and how, you know, the other character that comes back from the widows is Marvina. Oh yes. And Marvina <laughs> also had a tragic loss in the widows. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's just a little, a couple sentences I wanted to read about. So just to let listeners know, so there's Marvina and there's Lily and both Marvina and Lily suffered um, losses in the widows. And so right. there is a, a line of um, a story arc in the hollows about that they're still recovering from these losses and people right. have a choice of how, of what they choose to do to face that loss. And so this <laughs> is Marvina talking to Lily and she says, everyone's different. Still, I can tell you that with Jurgis, I found comfort. Marvina's voice creaks that lets me set aside the pain now and again you, though, you just keep hunkering down, waiting for the sorrow to stop, and I understand that, I do, but it'll never stop, not entirely. You know that. All hunkering down does is give sorrow away to burrow in, carve a hollow in your heart, go too deep, and sorrow is all that will ever fill it. 
And I just love that so much. I thought that was so touching. And it really speaks to how you do at some point have a choice as to, you know, whether you're going to let love and and openness into your heart or if you're really just going to do what Lily's doing, which is working. But what ends up happening is it bleeds out into all of your relationships and she starts to get a little snarky. Yeah. Her, her good <laughs> friends call her on that, which I really yeah. appreciate. You know, that's what friendship can be for. Right. So I wanted to yeah. talk to you about that and how you handled that as you were writing the book. We've all had experiences of loss and betrayal and, you know, that kind of thing in our lives. And I had an experience probably, let's see, it's 2020 already. Gosh. Yes. So about eight, nine years ago with some members of my family of origin where I, I was sorrowful and grieving. And like Lily, I felt like my, my go-to when I'm feeling sad or threatened is I will bear down and get through it. No one will know that I am feeling these things. <laughs> so I tried to be like Lily, you know, like I'll just, I'll just bullhead my way through and, and work. I'll work really hard and I'll do this and I'll do that. And of course it doesn't work. So, so I kind of infused Lily's reaction to her husband's loss with probably how I would handle or not handle uh, this, a similar situation and handled a, a different situation, but that also had emotional ramifications. But the wiser part of me knows what Marvina knows that that doesn't work because it does start to filter out and uh, into your behavior and, and your reactions with people. So that's really where that came from. You know, Marvina in this case is the, the wiser part of me and Lily is the, the gut reaction part of right. me. Right. Yeah. I just loved that. I thought that was so beautiful. And it, and like I said, it's helpful to have those friendships you can count on where people say, okay, yeah. sit down. We're going to talk about this. Right. Yeah. Well, and yeah. she says, too, at one point, like, it's been a year. Yeah. Or, you know, and I think, or she says something like, people, you know, give you grace for, like, a year, and then you need to kind of step up. And I and I think that's one of the important things about grief in our society is that people, there, there's there been these storylines about getting over it, getting through it. Mm -hmm. And I think some people take that to mean then that you don't feel that pain. But that pain right. is always with you yeah. for the rest of your life. And it's one of the painful, beautiful things about love. But that it does it does get better to use a, an overused phrase at this point. Right. Um, if you use, you know, tools and comfort and friends and talk and all that good stuff. Yeah. You know, so. Community. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's a good point. And I think that's kind of where Lily is in, in this book as the book progresses. And in the third book that you, you don't ever get, I mean, how would you ever get over a loss like she's experienced or like Marvina's experience? You don't get over it or forget it or just go, oh, yeah, that was a sad thing that happened. Right. Um, but it becomes kind of a part, an interesting part of, it can become an interesting part of who you are and shape how you see the world and can help you be more empathetic to other people, right. you know, that are experiencing similar loss or, or whatnot. I had one other thing. Oh, did you want to? Ask no, I'm that? looking. I'm okay. looking at Emily's. Uh, Emily has a printout here and it's highlighted, so I'm I'm waiting to <laughs> see what this next thing is. It's... Well, I you know I was born and raised in Ohio, and mm -hmm. um, Southern Ohio is tricky for its politics, I think, and uh -huh. that's where I lived a lot of my life. And um, one of the things that really surprised me was this idea of because there there are characters in the book who are. They're an interracial couple. Mm -hmm. And 
there's a point where you talk about, or Lily's thinking about anti, I don't know if I can, I'm going to pronounce this right, anti-miscegenation laws, right. is that how you call it? And that um, way back to 1887, and that Ohio was actually a state where interracial marriage was not illegal. And that was yeah. shocking to me. Right. And it was a long time before whichever state came next followed suit. There was this huge gap of like, I don't know, 40 years or something before other states came along. Yeah. So I think it makes sense because of the, the Underground Railroad and the Quaker presence in in Ohio. But I was surprised by that, too. And then also by Richard C. Davis was an African-American man who was one of two African-American men who, along with some white men, formed the United Mine Workers back in, you know, the 18, like 1890s or something like that in Southern Ohio. Hmm. So it's, it's sort of this interesting mix of points of view, like pick a topic or pick a point of view and it's represented <laughs> in this very uh, remote rural part of the country. Yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah, I was really impressed by that, and I was, and I thought, wow, I just learned something about Ohio history that I would have, if yeah. I'd been on a stage and someone had, you know, me guess which way this law went in Ohio at that time, I would have not guessed that way. Mm -hmm. I would not have either, but there you go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of like a borderlands area, you know, between, you know, where you have the north and the south, and it's kind of like this yes. strip of, I don't, you know, the Bible Belt or Rust Belt, you know, right. where you have those, you know, on the edges, cultures clashing and mm -hmm. something's going one way and other things going the other way, depending on what town or county you're in. Is it kind of like a patchwork like that? Yeah, Cause absolutely. Know, and that's one reason Ohio is always at the center of every, every four years. Right. <laughs> we are descended upon. Um, and get to feel important a, for a minute. Yeah. yeah we're <laughs> half a year every four years. We're like Brigadoon. They're the Brigadoon of politics. We pop up. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there, there is that north-south. You know, southern Ohio is very different than, than northern Ohio, especially in the 20s. Uh, I think Ohio was, I don't want to say the Wild West, but kind of was viewed as a frontier even up until I'd say probably post-World War II. Okay. It would have been thought of as, oh, that's the West. It's not the West as in Arizona, but you know what I mean? Like a frontier mm -hmm. type land because it was at one point frontier land. Yeah. As people were given post-revolutionary war tracts of land instead of pay, um, that's how a lot large part of Ohio got settled, especially that quadrant. Um, right. So, yeah. huh. well, you mentioned a third book. Am I jumping the gun, Emily? No, no, else? no. Yeah, I was <laughs> okay. going to say, um, you know, you're about to go on tour with this book, which <laughs> is really exciting. We want to remind listeners that Jess is happy to. Skype into book clubs and things like that. We will put all of your contact information into the show notes. But yes, there's also, I think you've been contracted for a third and a fourth. Is that Absolutely. Right? I have. Thank you, Minotaur. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I'm very, very excited about that to see. I, I kind of know where a lot of these characters are going. I needed to actually figure that out in order to write the second book. 
But since I figured it out anyway, it's nice to have books three and four at the very least um, out, out there in the future. And hopefully there'll be more after that because it's been really exciting and interesting to look at broad sweeps of history and big themes of history and see how they can play out on a very localized, specific level in everyday people, working class people's lives. There's plenty of coming. I mean, these poor folks here and, you know, now I'm working in 1927. They think the economy is great and booming and it's never going to go bad. <laughs> right. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, wow. well, yes, I'm pretty pleased. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm congrats. just so excited. I love the characters and it was so fun to just kind of, I felt like I was stepping just back into familiar territory when I opened the hollows and really enjoyed it. And I'm so excited you. for your success. Thank you. Thank you. I, I wanted to ask, do you have the same editor for each book? Do you work, yes. You do Catherine that? Richards okay. is my editor and she's fantastic. Great. She's actually the one who helped me understand that I created a really big world mm-hmm. and that there were more books in it oh, than wow. one. Oh, <laughs> Cause cool. I thought the widow's, was a standalone. Yeah. I'm just wrong, apparently. Oh. <laughs> well, how, so. how long was the sheriff, the real female Maud, how long was she the sheriff? She was sheriff through 1930. Um, and then I think after that, she became clerk of courts okay. in her county and had a, never remarried, um, had a lifetime career, you know, full career in law, in some aspect or another of law oh. enforcement. Yeah, lived to be 70-some years old wow. and had, I think, five five kids in real life. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Cool. I'm really enjoying her and Hildy, too. Yeah. Hildy's journey on this in this book is really interesting to me, too. Yeah. 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 I Well, I realized I kind of made her a fun, supportive, really nice, sweet person in The Widows. And as I was thinking about, you know, making this a series, I realized... I love Marvina and she will be in every book, but, and I'm sure again, at some point she will be a a narrator in, in, in a book, but I realized every book has to have Lily, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't figure out how to have Marvina in every book that made sense and didn't feel forced. And then I thought, why do you have to, it's called the kinship series. That means there's lots of people. If it's about community, then it can be Lily at the center of this community and someone else. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about the women in the widows and I thought, I'm going to know more about Hildy. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. (laughs) I love that. And I have to say that's one of the things I love about like Louise Penny's series, the three pints is that it's always about Gamache, but then different characters in three pines play more prominent roles in different books. So you get to know more about them. So there's that shorthand that readers then have in subsequent books. Like, oh yeah, I understand why that character is doing that. I mean, it's fine as a standalone, but if you know their back history, it's just so much richer. Yeah. 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 It's fun. I I like it. And it gives me kind of a broad like scope and and a world to play with. Do you ever see yourself writing from a male perspective and having one of the characters be male? I do have a character that I would like to write from his point of view, but I have never written from a male point of view mm. in anything that I've had published or that I have felt worked. I've tried writing from a male point of view and it just falls wooden usually for me. Mm. I, I guess I just don't get how men think. So <laughs> join the club. So I do, but I do have one character that I 
think I might, but we'll see. I'll play with it. And if it works great and if it doesn't, it doesn't. I've just, I've tried several times to write a male POV and it's just mm-hmm. never worked. Interesting. So. Interesting. And uh, thank you for coming to yes, talk to the thank book. Thank you theaters. for coming back. We love having you on. And um, maybe we'll see you on tour one of these days. That would be exciting. Yeah. Are, are you coming east fabulous. at all? That you know? uh, I'm not. I'm going uh, west again. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to the Pulpwood Queens in Texas over Martin Luther King weekend. Um, so if you love book clubs, look up the Pulpwood Queens. It's a whole group of writers and readers, and we just have a great old time. Um, and then I'm going to the Tucson Festival of the Book in Arizona in March, and uh, I have some Ohio events as well. So oh, great. Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking time to come talk with us, and we wish you incredible success with this one, and we will be waiting for the third and the fourth. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.